Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Time Traders by Andrea Norton. Your narrator is Adam von Bueller. Volume 4 Chapter 7 Ross whirled the rope which had been meant to bring him down around Lal. He lashed the tribesman's arms tight to his body before he knelt to cut loose his fellow time traveler. Lal now huddled against the far wall of the cup, fear in every line of his small body. So apparent was this fear that Ross felt no satisfaction at turning the tables on him. Instead, he felt increasingly uneasy. What is this all about? He asked McNeil as he stripped off his bonds and helped him up. McNeil massaged his wrists, took a step or two, and grimaced with pain. Our friend seeks to be an obedient servant of Lurga. Ross picked up his bow. The tribe is out to hunt us? Lurga has ordered, out of thin air again, that any traitors who escaped are to be brought in and introduced to him personally at the sacrifice for the enrichment of the fields. The old, old gift of blood and life at the spring sowing. Ross recalled grisly details from his cram lessons. Any wandering stranger or enemy tribesman taken in a raid before that day would meet such a fate. On unlucky years when people were not available, a deer or wolf might serve. But the best sacrifice of all was a man. So Lurga had decreed, from the air, that traitors were his meat. What of ash? Let any hunter from the village track him down. We have to move fast, Ross told McNeil as he took up the rope, which made a leading cord for Lal. Ash would want to question the tribesmen about this second order from Lurga. Impatient as Ross was, he had to mend his pace to accommodate McNeil. The man from the hill post was close to the end of his strength. He had started off bravely enough, but now he wavered. Ross sent Lal ahead with a sharp push, ordering him to stay there while he went to McNeil's aid. It was well into the afternoon before they came up the stream and saw the fire before the cave. Makna! Ash hailed Ross's companion with the native version of his name. And Lal! But what do you hear, Lal of Nodrin's town? Mischief! Ross helped McNeil within the cave and to the pile of brush which was his own bed. He was hunting traders as a present for Lurga. So, Ash turned upon the tribesmen. And by whose word did you go hunting my kinsman, Lal? Was it Nodrin's? Has he forgotten the blood bond between us? For it was in the name of Lurga himself that that bond was made. Eh? The tribesmen squatted down against the wall where Ross had shoved him. Unable to hide his head in his arms, he brought his face down upon his knees so that only his shaggy topknot of hair was exposed. Ross realized, with stupefaction, that the little man was crying like a child, his hunched shoulders rising and falling with the force of his sobs. Ah, he wailed. Ash allowed him a moment or two of noisy grief, and then limped over to grasp his topknot and pull up his head. Lal's eyes were screwed tightly shut, but there were tears on his cheeks, and his mouth twisted in another wail. Be quiet, 
Ash shook him, but not too harshly. Have you yet felt the bite of my sharp knife? Has an arrow hold your skin? You are alive, and you could be dead. Show that you are glad you live and continue to breathe by telling us what you know, Lal. The woman Casca had displayed a measure of intelligence and ease at their meeting upon the road, but it was very plain that Lal was of different stuff, a simple man in whose head few ideas could find house room at one time. And to him the present was all black. Little by little they dragged the story out of him. Lal was poor, so poor that he had never dared dream of owning for himself some of the precious things the hill traders displayed to the wealthy of Nodron's town. But he was also a follower of the great mothers, rather than one who made sacrifices to Lurga. Lurga was the god for warriors and great men. He was too high to concern himself with such as Lal. So when Nodron reported the end of the hill post under the storm fist of Lurga, Lal had been impressed only to a point. He was still convinced it was none of his concern, and instead he began thinking of the treasures which might lie hidden in the destroyed buildings. It occurred to him that Lurga's wrath had been laid upon the men who had owned them, but perhaps it would not stretch to the fine things themselves. So he had gone secretly to the hill to explore. What he had seen there had utterly converted him to a belief in the fury of Lurka, and he had been frightened out of his simple wits, fleeing without making the search he had intended. But Lurga had seen him there, had read his impious thoughts. At that point, Ash interrupted the stream of Lal's story. How had Lurga seen Lal? Because, Lal shuddered, began to cry again, and spoke the next few sentences haltingly. That very morning, when he had gone out to hunt wild fowl in the marshes, Lurga had spoken to him, to Lal, who was less than a flea creeping upon a worn-out fur rug. And how had Lurga spoken? Ash's voice was softer, gentle. Out of the air, even as he had spoken to Nodrin, who was a chief, he said that he had seen Lal in the hill post, and so Lal was his meat. But not yet would he eat him, not if Lal served him in other ways. And he, Lal, had lain flat on the ground before the bodiless voice of Lurga, and had sworn that he would serve Lurga to the end of his life. Then Lurga had told him to hunt down one of the evil traders who was hiding in the marshes, and bind him with ropes. Then he was to call the men of the village, and together they would carry the prisoner to the hill where Lurga had loosed his wrath, and there they would leave him. Later they might return and take what they found there and use it to bless the fields at sowing time, and all would be well with Nodrin's village. And Lal had sworn that he would do as Lurga bade, but now he could not, so Lurga would eat him up. He was a man without hope. Yet, Ash said even more gently, Have you not served the Great Mother all these years, giving to her a portion of the first fruits, even when the yield of your one field was small? Lal stared at him, his woe-begone face still smeared with tears. It took a second or two for the question to penetrate his fear-clouded mind. 
Then he nodded timidly. Has she not dealt with you well in return, Lal? You are a poor man, that is true, but you are not gaunt of belly. Even though this is the thin season when men fast before the coming of the new harvest, the Great Mother watches over her own, and it is she who has brought you to us now. For this I say to you, Lal, and I, Asha of the traders, speak with a straight tongue. The Lurga who struck our post, who spoke to you from the air, means you no good. Ah, wild Lal. So do I know, Asha. He is of the blackness and the wandering spirits of the dark. Just so. Does he is no kin to the mother, for she is of the light and of good things, of the new grain and the newborn lambs for your flocks, of the maids who wed with men and bring forth sons to lift their father's spears, daughters to spin by the hearth and sow the yellow grain in the furrows. Lurga's quarrel lies with us, Lal, not with Nodrin nor with you, and we take upon us that quarrel. He limped into the outer air where the shadows of evening were beginning to creep across the ground. Hear me, Lurga, he called into the coming night. I am Asha of the traders, and upon myself I take your hate, not upon Lal, nor upon Nodrin nor upon the people who live in Nodrin's town, shall your wrath lie. Thus do I say it. Ross, noticing that Ash concealed from Lal a wave of his hand, was prepared for some display meant to impress the tribesmen. It came in a spectacular burst of green fire beyond the stream. Lal wailed again, but when that fire was followed by no other manifestation, he ventured to raise his head once more. You have seen how Lurga answered me, Lal. Toward me only will his wrath be turned. Now, Ash limped back and dragged out the white wolfskin, dropping it before Lal. This you will give to Kaska, that she may make a curtain for the mother's home. See, it is white and so rare that the mother will be pleased with such a fine gift— and you will tell her all that has chanced and how you believe in her powers over the powers of Lurga, and the mother will be well pleased with you. But you shall say nothing to the men of the village, for this quarrel is between Lurga and Asha now, and not for the meddling of others. He unfastened the rope which bound Lal's arms. Lal reached out a hand to the wolfskin, his eyes filled with wonderment. This is a fine thing you give me, Asha, and the mother will be pleased, for in many years she has not had such a curtain for her secret place. Also I am but a little man. The quarrels of great ones are not for me. Since Lurga has accepted your words, this is none of my affair. Yet I will not go back to the village for a while, with your permission, Asha, for I am a man of... Loose and wagging tongue, and oftentimes I speak what I do not really wish to say. So if I am asked questions, I answer. If I am not there to be asked such questions, I cannot answer. McNeil laughed, and Ash smiled. Well enough, Lal. Perhaps you are a wiser man than you think. But also I do not believe you should stay here. 
The tribesman was already nodding. That do I say too, Asha. You are now facing the wrath of Lurga, and with that I wish no part. Thus I shall go into the marsh for a while. There are birds and hares to hunt, and I shall work upon this fine skin so that when I take it to the mother, it shall indeed be a gift worth her smiles. Now, Asha, I would go before the night comes if it pleases you. Go with good fortune, Lal. Ash stood apart while the tribesman ducked his head in a shy, awkward farewell to the others, pattering out into the valley. What if they pick him up? McNeil asked wearily. I don't think they can, Ash returned. And what would you do, keep him here? If we tried that, he'd scheme to escape and try to turn the tables on us. Now he'll keep away from Nodron's village and out of sight for the time being. Lal's not too bright in some ways, but he's a good hunter. If he has reason for hiding out, it'll take a better hunter to track him. At least we know now that the Reds are afraid they did not make a clean sweep here. What happened, McNeil? While he was telling his story in more detail, both Ash and Ross worked on his burns, making him comfortable. Then Ash sat back as Ross prepared food. How did they spot the post? Ash rubbed his chin and frowned at the fire. Only way I can guess is that they picked up our post signal and pinpointed the source. That means they must have been hunting us for some time. No strangers about lately. McNeil shook his head. Our cover wasn't broken that way. Sanford was a wonder. If I hadn't known better, I would have sworn he was born one of the Beaker folk. He had a network of informants running all the way from here into Brittany. Amazing how he was able to work without arousing any suspicions. I suppose his being a member of the Smiths Guild was a big help. He could pick up a lot of news from any village where there was one at work. And I tell you, McNeil propped himself up on his elbow to exclaim more vehemently, there wasn't a whisper of trouble from here, clear across the channel and pretty far to the north. We were already sure the south was clean before we ever took cover as beakers, especially since their clans are thick in Spain. Ash chewed a broiled wing reflectively. Their permanent base with the transport has to be somewhere within the bounds of the territory they hold in our own time. They could plant it in Siberia and laugh at us, McNeil exploded. No hope of our getting in there. No. Ash threw the stripped bone into the fire and licked grease from his fingers. Then they would be faced with the old problem of distance. If what they are exploiting lay within their modern boundaries, we would never have tumbled to the thing in the first place. What the Reds want must lie outside their twentieth-century holdings, a slender point in our favor. Therefore, they will plant their shift point as close to it as they can. Our transportation problem is more difficult than theirs will ever be. You know why we chose the Arctic for our base. It lies in a section of the world never populated by other than roving hunters. But I'll wager anything you want to name that their point is somewhere in Europe where they have people to contend with. If they are using a plane, they can't risk its being seen. I don't see why not, Ross broke in. These people couldn't possibly know what it was. Lurga's bird. Magic. 
Ash shook his head. They must have the interference with history worry as much as we have. Anything of our own time has to be hidden or disguised in such a way that the native who may stumble upon it will never know it is man-made. Our sub is a whale, to all appearances. Possibly their plane is a bird, but neither can bear too close an examination. We don't know what could result from a leak of real knowledge in this or any primitive time, how it might change history. But, Ross advanced, what he believed to be the best argument against that reasoning. Suppose I handed Lal a gun and taught him to use it. He couldn't duplicate the weapon. The technology required lies so far beyond this age. These people couldn't reproduce such a thing. True enough. On the other hand, don't belittle the ingenuity of the smiths or the native intelligence of men in any era. These tribesmen not be able to reproduce your gun— but it would set them thinking along new lines. We might find that they would think our time right out of being. No, we dare not play tricks with the past. This is the same situation we faced immediately after the discovery of the atom bomb. Everybody raced to produce that new weapon, and then sat around and shivered for fear we'd be crazy enough to use it on each other. The Reds have made new discoveries which we have to match, or we will go under. But back in time, we have to be careful, both of us, or perhaps destroy the world we do live in. What do we do now? McNeil wanted to know. Murdoch and I came here only for a trial run. It's his test. The sub is to call for us about nine days from now. So, if we sit tight, if we can sit tight, McNeil lay down again, they will take us out. Meanwhile, we have nine days. They spent three more days in the cave. McNeil was on his feet and impatient to leave before Ash was able to hobble well enough to travel. Though Ross and McNeil took turns at hunting and guard duty, they saw no signs that the tribesmen were tracking them. Apparently, Lal had done as he promised, withdrawing to the marsh and hiding there apart from his people. In the gray of pre-dawn on the fourth day, Ash wakened Ross. Their fire had been buried with earth, and already the cave seemed bleak. They ate venison roasted the night before, and went out into the chill of a fog. A little way down the valley, McNeil joined them out of the mist from his guard post. Keeping their pace to one which favored Ash's healing wound, they made their way inland in the direction of the track linking the villages. Crossing that road, they continued northward, the land beginning to rise under them. Far away, they heard the blatting of sheep, the bark of a dog. In the fog, Ross stumbled in a shallow ditch beyond which lay a stubbled field. Ash paused to look about him, his nostrils expanding as if he were a hound smelling out their trail. The three went on, crossing a whole series of small, irregular fields, Ross was sure that the yield from any of these cleared strips must be scanty. The fog was thickening. Ash pressed the pace, using his handmade crutch carefully. He gave an audible sigh of relief when they were faced at last by two stone monoliths rising like pillars. A third stone lay across them, forming a rude arch through which they saw a narrow valley running back into the hills. 
Through the fog, Ross could sense the eerie strangeness of the valley beyond the massive gate. He would have said that he was not superstitious, that he had merely studied these tribal beliefs as lessons. He had not accepted them. Yet now, if he had been alone, he would have avoided that place and turned aside from the valley, for that which waited within was not for him. To his secret relief, Ash paused by the arch to wait. The older man gestured the other two into cover. Ross obeyed willingly, though the dank drops of condensing fog dripped on his cloak and wet his face as he brushed against prickly-leafed shrubs. Here were walls of evergreen plants and dwarfed pines, almost as if this tunnel of year-round greenery had been planted with some purpose in mind. Once his companions had concealed themselves, Ash called, shrill but sweetly, with a bird's rising notes. Three times he made that sound before a figure moved in the fog, the rough gray white of its long cloak melting in the wisps of mist. Down that green tunnel, out of the heart of the valley, the other came, a loop of cloak concealing the entire figure. It halted right in back of the arch, and Ash, making a gesture to the others to stay where they were, faced the muffled stranger. Hands and feet of the mother, she who sows what may be reaped. Outland stranger who is under the wrath of Lurga, the other mocked him in the voice of Casca. What do you want, outlander, that you dare come here where no man may enter? That which you know, for on the night when Lurga came you also saw. Ross heard the hiss of a sharply drawn breath. How knew you that, outlander? Because you serve the mother and you are jealous for her and her service. If Lurga is a mighty god, you wanted to see his acts with your own eyes. When she finally answered, there was anger as well as frustration in her voice. And you know of my shame then, Asha, for Lurga came, on a bird he came, and he did even as he said he would. So now the village will make offerings to Lurga and beg his favor, and the mother will no more have those to hearken to her words and offer her the first fruits. But from whence came this bird which was Lurga? Can you tell me that, she who waits upon the mother? What difference does it make from what direction Lurga came? That does not add nor take from his power. Casca moved beneath the arch. Or does it in some strange way, Asha? Perhaps it does. Only tell me. She turned slowly and pointed over her right shoulder. From that way he came, Asha. Well did I watch, knowing that I was the mother's and that even Lurga's thunderbolts could not eat me up. Does knowing that make Lurga smaller in your eyes, Asha, when he has eaten up all that is yours and your kin with it? Perhaps, Asha repeated. I do not think Lurga will come so again. She shrugged, and the heavy cloak flapped. That shall be as it shall be, Asha. Now go, for it is not good that any man come hither. Casca paced back into the heart of the green tunnel, and Ross and McNeil came out of concealment. McNeil faced in the direction she had pointed. Northeast, he commented thoughtfully. The Baltic lies in that quarter.
Chapter 8 And that is about all. Ten days later, Ash, a dressing on his leg and a few of the pain lines smoothed from his face, sat on a bunk in the Arctic time post, nursing a mug of coffee in his hands and smiling, a little crookedly, at Nelson Millard. Millard, Calgary's, Dr. Webb, all the top brass of the project had not only come through the transfer point to meet the three from Britain, but were now crammed into the room, nearly pushing Ross and McNeil through the wall. Because this was it. What they had hunted for months, years, now lay almost within their grasp. Only Millard, the director, did not seem so confident. A big man with a bushy thatch of coarse graying hair and a heavy, fleshy face, he did not look like a brain. Yet Ross had been on the roster long enough to know that it was Millard's thick and hairy hands that gathered together all the loose threads of Operation Retrograde and deftly wove them into a workable pattern. Now the director leaned back in a chair which was too small for his bulk, chewing thoughtfully on a toothpick. So we have the first whiff of a trail, he commented without elation. A pretty strong lead, Kilgarry's broke in. Too excited to sit still, the Major stood with his back against the door, as alert as if he were about to turn and face the enemy. The Reds wouldn't have moved against Gog if they did not consider it a menace to them. Their big base must be in this time sector. A big base, Millard corrected. The one we are after, no. And right now they may be switching times. Do you think they will sit here and wait for us to show up in force? But Millard's tone, intended to deflate, had no effect on the Major. And just how long would it take them to dismantle a big base? That officer countered. At least a month, if we shoot a team in there in a hurry. Millard folded his huge hands over his barrel-shaped body and laughed, without a trace of humor. Just where do we send that team, Calgary's? Northeast of a coastal point in Britain is a rather vague direction, to say the least. Not, he spoke to Ash now, that you didn't do all you could, Ash. And you, McNeil, nothing to add. No, sir. They jumped us out of the blue when Sandy thought he had every possible line tapped, every safeguard working. I don't know how they caught on to us, unless they located our beam to this post. If so, they must have been deliberately hunting us for some time— because we only used the beam as scheduled. The Reds have patience and brains and probably some more of their surprise gadgets to help them. We have the patience and the brains, but not the gadgets. And time is against us. Get anything out of this web? Millard asked the hitherto silent third member of his ruling committee. The quiet man adjusted his glasses on the bridge of his nose, a flattish nose which did not support them very well. Just another point to add to our surmises. I would say that they are located somewhere near the Baltic Sea. There are old trade routes there, and in our own time it is a territory closed to us. We never did know too much about that section of Europe. Their installation may be close to the Finnish border. They could disguise their modern station under half a dozen covers. That is strange country. Millard's hands unfolded and he produced a notebook and pen from a shirt pocket. 
won't hurt to stir up some of the present-day agents of the M.I. and the rest. They might just come up with a useful hint. So you'd say the Baltic, but that is a big slice of country. Webb nodded. We have one advantage, the old trade routes. In the Beaker period, they are pretty well marked. The major one into that section was established for the amber trade. The country is forested, but not so heavily as it was in an earlier period. The native tribes are mostly roving hunters and fishermen along the coast, but they have had contact with traders. He shoved his glasses back into place with a nervous gesture. The Reds may run into trouble themselves there at this time. How? Kilgarry's demanded. Invasion of the Axe people. If they have not yet arrived, they are due very soon. They formed one of the big waves of migratory people who flooded the country, settled there. Eventually they became the Norse, or Celtic stock. We don't know whether they stamped out the native tribes they found there or assimilated them. That might be a nice point to have settled more definitely, McNeil commented. It could mean the difference between getting your skull split and continuing to breathe. I don't think they would tangle with the traders. Evidence found today suggests that the beaker folk simply went on about their business in spite of a change in customers, Webb returned. Unless they were pushed into violence. Ash handed his empty mug to Ross. Don't forget Lurga's wrath. From now on, our enemies might take a very dim view of any beaker trade posts near their property. Webb shook his head slowly. A wholesale attack on beaker establishments would constitute a shift in history. The Reds won't dare that. Not just on general suspicion. Remember, they are not any more eager to tinker with history than we are. No, they will watch for us. We will have to stop communication by radio. We can't, snapped Millard vehemently. We can cut it down, but I won't send the boys out without some means of quick communication. You lab boys, put your brains to work and see what you can turn out in the way of talk boxes that they can't snoop. Time! He drummed on his knee with his thick fingers. It all comes back to a question of time. Which we do not have. Ash observed in his usual quiet voice. If the Reds are afraid they have been spotted, they must be dismantling their post right now, working around the clock. We'll never again have such a good chance to nail them. We must move now. Millard's lids drooped almost shut. He might have been napping. Calgary stirred restlessly by the door and Webb's round face had settled into what looked like permanent lines of disapproval. Doc, Millard spoke over his shoulder to the fourth man of his following. What is your report? Ash must be under treatment for at least five days. McNeil's burns aren't too bad, and Murdoch's slash is almost healed. Five days? Millard droned, and then flashed a glance at the Major. Personnel. We're tied down without any useful personnel. Who in processing could be switched without tangling them up entirely? No one. I can recall Jansen and Van Wyck. These axe people might be a good cover for them. 
the momentary light in Calgary's eyes faded. No, we have no proper briefing and can't get it until the tribe does appear on the map. I won't send any men in cold. Their blunders would not only endanger them, but might menace the whole project. So that leaves us with you three, Millard said. We'll recall what men we can and brief them again as fast as possible. But you know how long that will take. In the meantime, Ash spoke directly to Webb. You can't pinpoint the region closer than just the Baltic. We can do this much, the other answered him slowly and with obvious reluctance. We can send the sub cruising offshore there for the next five days. If there is any radioactivity, any communication, we should be able to trace the beams. It all depends upon whether the Reds have any parties operating from their post. Flimsy. But something, Kilgary seized upon it with the relief of one who needed action. And they will be waiting for just such a move on our part, Webb continued deliberately. All right, so they'll be watching, the Major said, about to lose his temper. But it is about the only move we can make to back up the boys when they do go in. He whipped around the door and was gone. Webb got up slowly. I will work over the maps again, he told Ash. We haven't scouted that area, and we don't dare send a photo plane over it now. Any trip in will be a stab in the dark. When you have only one road, you take it, Ash replied. I'll be glad to see anything you can show me, Miles. If Ross had believed that his pre-trial run cramming had been a rigorous business, he was soon to laugh at that estimation. Since the burden of the next jump would rest on only three of them, Ash, McNeil, and himself, they were plunged into a whirlwind of instruction until Ross, dazed and too tired to sleep on the third night, believed that he was more completely bewildered than indoctrinated. He said as much sourly to McNeil. Base has pulled back three other teams, McNeil replied, but the men have to go to school again, and they won't be ready to come on for maybe three, four weeks. To change runs means unlearning stuff as well as learning it. What about new men? Don't think Calgary's isn't out now beating the bushes for some. Only we have to be fitted to the physical type we are supposed to represent. For instance... Set a small, dark-headed pug nose among your North Sea rovers, and he's going to be noticed. Maybe remembered too well. We can't afford to take that chance. So Calgary's had to discover men who not only look the part, but are also temperamentally fitted for this job. You can't plant a fellow who thinks as a seaman. Not a seaman, you understand, but one whose mind works in that pattern. Among a wandering tribe of cattle herders. The protection for the man and the project lies in his being fitted into the right spot at the right time. Ross had never really thought of that point before. Now he realized that he and Ash and McNeil were of a common mold. All about the same height, they shared brown hair and light eyes, Ash's blue, his own gray, and McNeil's hazel. And they were of similar build, small-boned, lean, and quick-moving. He had not seen any of the true Beekerman except on the films. But now, recalling those, 
He could see that the three time traders were of the same general physical type as the far roving people they used as a cover. It was on the morning of the fifth day, while the three were studying a map Webb had produced, that Kilgarry's, followed at his own weighty pace by Millard, burst in upon them. We have it! This time we have the luck! The Reds slipped! Oh, how they slipped! Webb watched the Major, a thin little smile pulling at his pursed mouth. Miracles sometimes do happen, he remarked. I suppose the sub has a fix for us. Kilgarry's passed over the flimsy strip of paper he had been waving as a banner of triumph. Webb read the notation on it and bent over the map, making a mark with one of those needle-sharp pencils which seemed to grow in his breast pocket, ready for use. Then he made a second mark. Well, it narrows it a bit, he conceded. Ash looked in turn and laughed. I would like to hear your definition of narrow sometime, Miles. Remember, we have to cover this on foot, and a difference of twenty miles can mean a lot. That mark is quite a bit in from the sea, McNeil offered his own protest when he saw the marking. We don't know that country. Webb shoved his glasses back for the hundredth time that morning. I suppose we could consider this critical condition read, he said in such a dubious tone that he might have been begging someone to protest his statement. But no one did. Millard was busy with the map. I think we do, Miles, he looked to Ash. You'll parachute in. The packs with which you'll be equipped are special stuff. Once you have them off, sprinkle them with a powder Miles will provide, and in ten minutes there won't be enough of them left for anyone to identify. We haven't but a dozen of these, and we can't throw them away except in a crisis. Find the base and rig up the detector. Your fix in this time will be easy, but it is the other end of the line we must have. Until you locate that, stick to the job. Don't communicate with us until you have it. There is the possibility, Ash pointed out. The Reds may have more than one intermediate post. They probably have played it smart and set up a series of them to spoil a direct trace, as each would lead only to another farther back in time. All right. If that proves true, just get us the next one back, Millard returned. From that we can trace them along if we must send in some of the boys wearing dinosaur skins later. We have to find their primary base. And if that hunt goes the hard way, well, we do it the hard way. How did you get the fix? McNeil asked. One of their field parties ran into trouble and yelled for help. Did they get it? The Major grinned. What do you think? You know the rules and the ones the Reds play by are twice as tough on their own men. What kind of trouble? Ash wanted to know. Hmm, some kind of a local religious dispute. We do our best with their code, but we're not a hundred percent perfect in reading it. I gather they were playing with a local god and got their fingers burned. Lurga again, eh? Ash smiled. Foolish! Webb said impatiently. That is a silly thing to do. You were almost over the edge of prudence yourself, Gordon, with that Lurga business. 
to use the great mother was a ticklish thing to try, and you were lucky to get out of it so easily. Once was enough, Ash agreed, though using it may have saved our lives. But I assure you I am not starting a holy war or setting up as a prophet. Ross had been taught something of map reading, but mentally he could not make what he saw on paper resemble the countryside. A few landmarks, if there were any outstanding ones, were all he could hope to impress upon his memory until he was actually on the ground. Landing there according to Millard's instruction was another experience he would not have chosen of his own accord. To jump was a matter of timing, and in the dark, with a measure of rain thrown in, the action was anything but pleasant. Leaving the plane in a blind, follow-the-leader fashion, Ross found the descent into darkness one of the worst trials he had yet faced. But he did not make too bad a landing in the small park-like expanse they had chosen for their target. Ross pulled loose his harness and chute, dragging them to what he judged to be the center of the clearing. Hearing a plaintive bray from the air, he dodged as one of the two burden asses sent to join them landed and began to kick at its trappings. The animals they had chosen were the most docile available, and they had been given sedation before the jump, so that now, feeling Ross's hands, the donkey stood quietly while Ross stripped it of its hanging straps. Rossa. The sound of his beaker name called through the dark brought Ross facing in the other direction. Here, and I have one of the donkeys. And I the other. That was McNeil. Their eyes adjusted to a gloom which was not as thick as it would be in the forest, and they worked fast. Then they dragged the parachutes together in a heap. The rain would, Webb had assured them, add to the rapid destruction wrought by the chemical he had provided. Ash shook it over the pile, and there was a faint greenish glow. Then they moved away to the woodland and made camp for the balance of the night. So much of their whole exploit depended upon luck, and this small part had been successful. Unless some agent had been stationed to watch for their arrival, Ross believed they could not be spotted. The rest of their plan was elastic. Posing as traders who had come to open a new station, they were to stay near a river which drained a lake, and then angled southward to the distant sea. They knew this section was only sparsely settled by small tribes, hardly larger than family clans. These people were generations behind the civilized level of the villagers of Britain, roving hunters who followed the sweep of game north or south with the seasons. Along the seashore, the fishermen had established more permanent holdings which were slowly becoming towns. There were perhaps a few hardy pioneer farmers on the southern fringes of the district, but the principal reason traders came to this region was to get amber and furs. The Beaker people dealt in both. Now, as the three sheltered under the wide branches of a towering pine, Ash fumbled with a pack and brought out the Beaker, which was the identifying mark of his adopted people. He measured into it a portion of the sour, stimulating drink, which the traders introduced wherever they went. The cup passed from hand to hand, its taste unpleasant on the tongue, but comfortingly warm to one's middle. They took turns keeping the watch until the gray of false dawn became the clearer light of morning. After breakfasting on flat cakes of meal, they packed the donkeys, 
using the same knots and cross lashing which were the mark of real beaker traders. Their bows protected from dampness under their cloaks, they set out to find the river and their path southward. Ash led, Ross towed the donkeys, and McNeil brought up the rear. In the absence of a path, they had to set a ragged course, keeping to the edge of the clearing until they saw the end of the lake. Wood smoke, Ash commented when they had completed two-thirds of their journey. Ross sniffed and was able to smell it, too. Nodding to Ash, McNeil oozed into nothingness between the trees with an ease Murdoch envied. As they waited for him to return, Ross became conscious of another life about them, one busy with its own concerns, which were in no way those of human beings, except that food and perhaps shelter were to be reckoned among them. In Britain, Ross had known there were others of his kind about, but this was different. Here he could have believed it if he had been told he was the first man to walk this way. A squirrel ran out on a tree limb and surveyed the two men with curious, beady eyes, then clung head down on the tree trunk to see them better. One of the donkeys tossed its head, and the squirrel was gone with a flirt of its tail. Although it was quiet, there was a hum underneath the surface which Ross tried to analyze, to identify the many small sounds which went into its making. Perhaps because he was trying so hard, he noted the faint noise. His hand touched Ash's arm, and a slight movement of his head indicated the direction of the sound. Then, as fluidly as he had melted into the woods, McNeil returned. Company, he said in a soft voice. What kind? Tribesmen, but wilder than any I've seen, even on the tapes. We are certainly out on the fringes now. These people look about cave level. I don't think they've ever heard of traders. How many? Three, maybe four families. Most of the males must be out hunting, but there are about ten children and six or seven women. I don't think they've had good luck lately by the look of them. Maybe their luck and ours are going to turn together, Ash said, motioning Ross forward with the donkeys. We will circle about them to the river and then try bartering later but I do want to establish contact.